It started out as a weekend where two people who loved each other were going to go on a camping trip. The evidence is going to show they didn't have a chance. Special Prosecutor Mark Williams, opening statement at trial. Violent Vice contains graphic and or explicit content, which may not be suitable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Violent Vice. My name is Audie Griffith. And I'm John John. Hello. Hello. If you guys could do us a favor, hit that subscribe button and give us a review. We'd really, really appreciate it. And John John, you had some news this week. Yeah, we got a puppy. You got a puppy? Oh my gosh. What's its name? Its name is Kit Kat, but I call it Kit. Nice. it's confusing with the cat part, and it's a dog. (laughs) Uh, Rescue or breed, or what kind of dog is it? It's a rescue. Uh, I think it's one of, like, the big massive amounts that have come from Texas up to foster homes around this area. So, I don't know, because apparently strays are pretty bad down in Texas area. So, yeah. I have no idea what kind of breed she is. She is definitely a mix of, like, at least four different kinds. But we have no idea what it is, and we're thinking about doing that DNA test to see what kinds it is. Well, that's fun and exciting. Mm-hmm. That is. I ordered napkins for the wedding. That is what I did this week. So. There you go. Planning. Woo. Yeah, there you go. Progress is progress. Yeah. Yup, yup, yup. So, John, John. Yes. I know you don't have really any idea what we're doing this week, but nope. it, it kind of hits home, uh, quite literally, for you and I. Um, um, so, we are going to cover... The Wisconsin Campground Killer. The what now? The Wisconsin Campground Killer. You you know, I'm still in Wisconsin. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and and we used to go camping in campgrounds before we got the cabin, and yes, uh, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, camping is, like, one of the main things to do in Wisconsin, especially during the nice months, so this'll be spooky. Yeah, and there are future plans for camping. Oh, yeah. Ahead well, for... What? Well, not not really future plans, but we'll kind of get into that. Wait, no, I, I have future plans for camping. Is this... Am I in danger? No, 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 no. This happened a while ago, so you're safe, you're safe. I'm not that mean to you. Okay, thank you. I got <laughs> yeah. paranoid for, like, a solid minute there. My yeah. God. Now, I know recently I haven't been doing the quote with you listening into it, and I'm kind of glad I didn't, uh, because this quote kind of hits the... basically hits the nail on the head for this case, so... Yeah, it it's it's a really really a doozy. 
Okay, well, we'll have to listen in on that next week for the to get word you're referring to. Yeah. All yeah. mysterious and whatnot. Yeah. Well, I, I want you to be kind of surprised when we go through the case, so it should be should be pretty fun. And I just want to give a big shout-out for everyone that came out and downloaded and listened to the podcast for the first week back. That meant a lot to us, and oh, John, yeah. John and I really felt welcome-backed, so... Thank you, guys. Yeah, it's, like, huge already. Like, even before the downloads started happening, it was, like, a lot of activity. It was it was really nice. I'm glad people like it. It's fun. Yeah. So, you ready to dig into this Wisconsin case? <laughs> no. But here we are. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So... Just kind of covering the who, what, where, and when. David Schuldels and Ellen Matthews set out on a camping trip on July 9th, 1976. And they were an engaged couple and they just wanted to, you know, do a camping trip. So their first spot that they tried to camp at was Goodman Park. But it was a busy weekend, as you know, most Wisconsin weekends are. So they drove on to McClintock Park, and sadly, this decision would prove to be fatal for them. So kind of getting into the location, McClintock Park is in Silver Cliff, Wisconsin, in Marionette County. So it's about an hour west of Marionette and about an hour 30 east of Rylander. So if you're thinking about your hand on Wisconsin... Uh, it is kind of your pointer finger bottom of the nail. So pretty up north and pretty east. Close to that Michigan border, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Kind of kind of near the Uper area. Okay. Yeah. And believe it or not, Silver Cliff is smaller than Spooner, Wisconsin, with only having a population of 518 people. That is pretty tiny. Yeah. But not unheard of around these parts. Yep, not unheard of. And Marionette County does have stoplights, so, I mean, Spooner's not that special. <laughs> no, but those are the only stoplights in the county. And Washburn, you know. but yeah. yeah. Yep, yep, yep. So, yeah. Yeah. And something kind of interesting to cover, uh, about 6.7 miles away from Marionette is Pistigo, Wisconsin, which is widely considered a very haunted spot in the state. And that is because they had a giant fire the same day as the Chicago Great Fire. Which is... So, like, the Great Chicago Fire, early, like, industrial fun stuff, like, all that stuff going on. And then, same day, different whole town catches on fire. Yeah. Weird. Yep. So these hauntings specifically are reported at the Fire Museum in Pishtigo, Wisconsin. The museum was erected to memorialize the fire of October 8, 1871. Again, the same night as the Great Chicago Fire. And this fire is considered to be one of the deadliest in the United States. The Chicago Fire. Oh, I was going to say, it's just like, it was a... If it was a small town, but, like, did then everybody die or something? Because for it to be one of the worst, it would have to 
I also think the Pashtigo fire is up there too. Um, so for the, one of the deadliest and why it was deadliest, uh, because the Pashtigo river runs right through the town and it must've been like windy that night or something because the fire jumped to the other side of the river and it destroyed both sides of that town. Every building was lost in Pashtigo and the deaths were estimated from about 1200 to 2,500 people. In addition, it destroyed about 1,875 square miles of forest. Holy, that is, that's a bad fire. Yeah. Especially for Wisconsin. Definitely one of Wisconsin's worst. So this town also includes a mass grave for about 350 people, uh, many of which were unidentified because of the fire and how much, you know, they were burned, and that there is not really any survivors to identify them. The cemetery marker was erected in 1951, and it was the first historical marker in the state. It's not exactly a thing to be proud to have the first marker of the state. Be a mass grave, but... Yeah, it's it's a bit of a downer. Yeah. Mm. But anyway, this is all just the town nearby, this campsite... Yeah. What's going on? Why is that a fatal decision? Well, we'll we'll get into it. But the town the town itself is uh kind of cool too, and I just wanted to hop in the ha- hauntings before we get to the murder, a little bit. Wait, wait, it's the fire. I thought it was just like it's a literal ghost town because everything is gone. Did it get rebuilt and everything's haunted now? Kind of. Yes. Oh my god. So. Like I said earlier, uh, there's a museum kind of dedicated to this fire, and it's in the first church built after the fire burnt everything down. Visitors report to hear ghostly voices, seeing apparitions, smelling smoke, and one person even reported seeing the museum enveloped in a phantom flame. So, like, you know, ghost flames. Do you think, like, it was more just, like, it looked like it was on fire, but it wasn't actually on fire? Or did, like, the fire look like it was ghost fire? I think ghost fire from the report. That seems vague. Like, does that mean it's just, like, it's blue or more see-through? Or I, I want to know what ghost fire means because that sounds just like a cool concept. Like, it, that's definitely got to be a band name for something. We got into apparitions, I I believe, with Robert the Doll. How, like, apparitions can kind of be either, like, a time uh, where, where they're, like, reenacting a certain time or point in history. Mm-hmm. And just, like, phantom apparitions, apparitions like that. Mm-hmm. So I think that was what was going on there. You just essentially did one of those... Like a portal into the past, seeing what was going on, but really it's not happening at the moment because it's a a phantom situation. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. They're just basically glimpsing the past when it was on fire. Yeah, basically. Gotcha. So, I also wanted to touch on, before we actually get into the crime itself, that the campground where this crime has happened, um, so this was also part of that burned area, um, and people, you know, 
there's obviously murders that take place. And people now report seeing orbs uh, where others swear, like, nothing's there. But regardless, it's a beautiful, beautiful campground and beautiful scenery. But uh, supposedly the campground is now haunted as well. Wait, so they're seeing... They're just seeing floating orbs? Yep, orbs. So, like, that could be from the 2,500 people that were killed during the fire or from the murdered guests. Mm-hmm. Could... I don't know, it sounds sort of like the will-o'-wisp things, which we might want to cover at some point. There's, like, hills filled with them down in South America that I've heard about, where it's just, you can see it from the nearby town, just orbs filling up the entirety of the, like, mountainside. I thought the will-o'-wisps were Celtic. They are, but, like, it's the same concept. It's just South American. It's a very different name. I just... Will-O-Wisp is the word that I know for it. Gotcha. We'll look into that. Anywho, let's dig into the murder. So, a little bit about the couple. The couple was David Schudes, who worked at Green Bay Press Gazette's circulation department. He was about 25. And then Ellen Matthews, who worked at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay Library. Matthews was described as intelligent, introverted, soft-spoken, and a really nice person by a friend. Schudes was described as a great golfer and an overall good athlete who went out of his way to be nice to others. As an example, the witness said he suffered from a brain hemorrhage that caused one eye to droop. While most people avoided him, Schudes sought out to him and talked to him every day. So, overall, a nice guy. The couple... Yeah. Yeah. I just... Lovely college couple that were engaged. Yeah. Okay. Very, very nice. Like, overall, really nice people. Um, so the couple had dated approximately three years prior to their engagement, and both appeared to be calm, happy, and peaceful while talking about their engagement and soon-to-be wedding. As family and friends describe, part of the horror of this case is... They didn't get to know a whole lot about this couple. The case mostly just centers around the crime and the murderer. So the couple, really, that's all that we get to know about them were those few short sentences that, you know, they were just generally really nice people. And, yeah, it's kind of sad. Yeah, where essentially their their lives are overshadowed by what happened to them. Exactly. Hmm. So, what did happen to them? Well, the like I said, the couple, you know, went camping. When the couple arrived to the camp, they set up, you know, their area with their tent and fire and everything, and then they decided to go to a hike. However, by 2.30 p.m., a park worker, Stanley a pansy switch, came to check on the supply of foot firewood for the site. He's a, you know, good tentative worker. However a pansy switch discovered a gruesome crime scene. He noticed David's body lying near the entrance of the outdoor restroom. David was shot in the neck by a 30 caliber firearm and Ellen was not found at this time. At that point, another vehicle entered the park and a pansy switch asked the individual who was an off-duty police officer to stay with the body while he called authorities to report the crime. And then the investigation began that afternoon. So the investigation After searching the couple's campsite, it became, you know, apparent that there's probably a woman who was missing as well. 
and although an immediate search was performed, they were not able to find the woman, be woman before dark. So, you know, they searched the campsite and found women's things. That's how they determined that there was a woman missing. Yeah. Mm, that's distressing. Yeah. In an expanded search the next morning, Matthews was found. They were able to see that she was dead from a gunshot wound as well. The autopsies revealed that David was killed by a gunshot wound to the neck, while Matthews was killed by a, a gunshot wound to the chest. But she had also had a gunshot wound to her abdomen as well. She was sexually assaulted as well. Okay. Uh, mm. Yep. Yeah. So, semen was found at the scene. Though, at the crime scene, Matthews was found dressed, which would end up kind of being the key to this case. So the semen was preserved in her shorts, and that provided the DNA link to unwrapping this case later on. So it is a very bad thing to have happen, but um, because of that, you know, the case was able to be solved years down the road. Yeah, still, yikes. Exactly, yikes. Ultimately, the Marinette County Sheriff's Office contacted the Wisconsin DOJ Office for assistance in the investigation. That's Department of Justice. Although the special agents conducted a thorough investigation and interviewed many people, they were unable to establish any major suspects. So the case went cold. So they just they didn't know who was out in the park or like they... Went through everybody that was at the campsite already and couldn't really find any reason to suspect anyone specifically or something? Yeah, they went through everyone that was at the park, um, didn't find any major suspects, so again, it kind of went cold. I don't know if documentation wasn't the greatest back then for the park guests and everything, but... I mean, it was a campground, so probably not. And it was the 70s, so... Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, kind of what happened after the case went cold? In the 1990s, Detective Craig Bates gets assigned to this cold case, and he spends years working on it. The mid-90s was also the advancement of DNA profiling. So, remember the shorts that I had talked about? Those got sent in for DNA analysis. And the Wisconsin State Crime Lab was able to develop a DNA pro profile from those shorts, and they determined that it came from a single male source, so it wasn't multiple people, it was just one person. All right, that would have made things crazier, I bet, if it was more than one. Yeah. So this profile was put into CODIS, which is the Combined DNA Index System. I believe I talked about CODIS a bit before in one of the past podcasts, but yeah, basically mm -hmm. it's just, you know, a national DNA uh, criminal. Yeah, uh, like, basically, if you've been convicted of a crime or something like that, then they have your DNA put into the system, along with, like, your fingerprints and stuff like that. I think that's all part of the procedure it is now, so. Yep, and this is just to, you know, make uh, people that are convicted match them to any other crimes that are unsolved or any and suspects, you know, basically. Mm -hmm. So, at the time that this was put in, in the 90s, there was not a match. So, in 2001, Detective Baldwin 
was assigned to homicide, and Baldwin decided to enter the DNA into multiple suspects in the case, but again, there was no match. So, 2001, he gets, you know, put into homicide, and he has possibly a few more suspects. Again, no match to CODIS or anything that he puts in. Essentially eliminating the suspects that they couldn't really be certain about, but had hunches about. Exactly. Then in 2018, investigators with the Marinette County Sheriff's Office contacted Parabon Nano Labs, and investigators were provided with information as to how they could provide the company with a DNA profile developed in this case, which they ultimately did provide. So Parabon Nano Labs uploads DNA from crime scenes to GEDmatch, which is like a free genealogy website. So think about like Ancestry.com or one of those websites that, you know, are now very popular. Mm -hmm. And it has about 1.2 million profiles that are all voluntarily submitted to this Mm -hmm. website. Mm -hmm. So... Part of that terms and conditions stuff. It it is. Um, So so they can, like, link unsolved crimes to family trees and then kind of narrow it down, which is what happened to the Golden State Killer a year prior to our killer's arrest. Oh, so, well, I guess there's some use in using stuff that is not particularly known to be used in certain ways, but yeah, that's, yeah. that's kind of crazy to think about, though, because how many people are have used that stuff and now have that on their profile? <gasps> yeah, and what's kind of cool... Zodiac killer did it. what's kind of cool too about uh the dna profiles so they can actually build like a sketch or relatively say what features this killer had based on the dna profile too which is pretty awesome in my opinion like being able to do like a composite sketch based on their dna yeah like your dna traits and everything like they they can give like an educated guess Basically. They probably wouldn't be able to guess, like, body fat amount or something like that, as well as scars, but they could probably get a lot of the basics off of that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, so we're going to kind of get into it. So with that DNA profile that was submitted to Parabon Labs, they were able to t- determine that the suspect mainly had ancestry from northern European area, so they would have fair skin, blue eyes, reddish hair, and some or few freckles. They were also able to provide an image of what the suspect could have looked like at 25 and then also aged enhanced to what they would look like at 65 today to, you know, see the passage of time. The next time investigators were contacted by Paraben Labs was when they were told the company had a genealogist that works with them that may be able to come up with a suspect. This is kind of around the same time as the Golden State Killer uh, case was unraveled. So, like, they're going to apply that method to this case. Okay. Yeah. Two months later, uh, Parapin Labs Works was complete uh, with the investigator that they had pulled on to the case. So, let me kind of just go into what this genealogist performed to kind of get your suspect, if you will. Through her work, the genealogist was able to narrow down the suspect pool to a specific family, again, from these 
websites that, you know, were submitted DNA voluntarily. And this was the family of Gladys Brunette and Edward Vanuwevenhoven. That's Edward Vanuwevenhoven. I might just spell the name because it's very hard to say. Yeah, I kind of want to take a whack at it. So it's V-A-N-N-I-E-U-W-E-N-H-O-V-E-N. Vanuwevenhoven. I can't say it. I apologize. Vanuwevenhoven. I don't know. Does that sound like it was close? That sounds like it was close. All right. Gladys and Edward had six children, and the genealogist further thought that the pool could be narrowed down to that couple's four sons or four grandsons. So the daughters were obviously eliminated. Yes, but that's kind of cool. Or, like, they kind of got most of, like, the DNA matches a different thing, and they realize it's, like, one of their relatives, and then they just deduce based on what's there and if they can find matches they just look for the facial features and they'll find them yeah so you have like maternal and paternal dna that you can pull from so like that's how they were able to say like hey it was this family and because your paternal and maternal dna do stay a couple like you know through a few generations like that's Mm -hmm. why they said either grandchildren or direct children So, let's get into their children. So, Edward, his nickname was Sylvester. He was eliminated. They got his coffee cup from his neighbor, Tom Shallow, who was a retired Oncato County detective when Shallow was at his cabin. So, like, Shallow had a cabin next to Edward, and he just picked up a trash coffee cup. And, And, like, they took that DNA and see if it matched? Yep, but it was not a match. Oh, was that legal? So when you discard something, it depends on what state and county you are. And But as soon as you mm. throw it away, it kind of becomes the property of the state. That's why they take it to, like, dumps and everything. So as soon as you discard something, it's no longer your property and just kind of a free-for-all. It's just unsightly to go through somebody's trash. Yep, but that's how, how they could pull... Um, DNA. So, like, Michael D'Angelo, the uh, Golden State Killer, they pulled out his trash cup and got DNA from that to confirm that he was, in fact, the Golden State Killer. Cool. Yeah. So, his next son, Francis, he wasn't ever tested or eliminated, and that's because the other brothers were investigated first. The next brother, so the third brother, Cornelius, was eliminated after a bag of his trash was obtained. So again, you know, just discarding of items and everything. Mm-hmm. Three of his items were sent for testing, socks, a bandage, and an inhaler. And although the crime lab was able to isolate the DNA on the inhaler, it was not a match. But from this profile, it confirmed that the suspect was a family member of Cornelius in the paternal line. So uh, they mm-hmm. just kind of narrowed down the scope a little bit farther. So this just confirmed the paternal line. Okay. The next brother was Raymond, and the investigators requested help from Oncanto County Chief Deputy Darren Lazowski under the guise of conducting a survey about policing the townships. They requested that once the survey was completed that it would be mailed with an envelope sealed by Raymond. So basically they kind of faked paperwork 
and then wanted Freeman to lick the envelope. So That seems sketchy, like in a different way, though. It does, and we'll kind of get to that um, a bit. So the saliva Raymond used to seal the envelope was then sent to the crime lab for analysis on March 7th, 2019. A DNA was created uh, from the profile of the saliva, and it was a match to the single-source DNA developed from the semen in Matthew's shorts. A search warrant was then ex- executed, and a 30-gauge lever-action rifle was found in the garage as well as 30-gauge casings and a tin can on a shelf above their washer and dryer. He was arrested then on March 14, 2019, and the bail was set to $1 million. So, let's get into... Yeah, we're, this sounds like we're getting into some interesting stuff with the court case now, but we know who it was... Yeah, so there is a lot of controversy about using ancestral sites and DNA sites for solving crimes. Yeah, but, but, yeah. At the same time, like, if you committed a crime, like, and and they go about, you know, a publicly domained and executed method of, like, saying, hey, here's my DNA, I think it's fine. The Mm -hmm. envelope is a little sketch to me. But they could have just done the trash thing and it would have been fine. That's kind of what I was thinking why they didn't do that. But okay. Yeah. So let's get into Raymond. All right. So he was 82 years old when he was arrested. He had been living in Lakewood, Wisconsin. And prior to his arrest, he was a widower and the father of five grown children. So he was, you know, like the family man next door. Hmm. It's always like the pillar of the community type yeah. person. But when did they apprehend him? When he was uh, 82 years old in 2019. 2019. Yeah. Okay, so 40 years? 45-ish years, yeah. 45-ish years in between. Yeah. So he probably did that all before the family thing happened. Well, we'll, we'll kind of get into it. Yeah. So, again, kind of going into a bit more about Raymond, his next-door neighbors were shocked by the news, and Raymond would frequently fix, like, their lawnmower or snowblower, being, like, the neighborly neighbor type person. And almost all the people that they interviewed reported that he was a good, normal, retired guy. Again, like, it's always the normal ones Mm. to be most suspicious about. Yeah, I I don't know. I think it's just more... I feel like after watching the show Dexter, it seems like they never seem to be who you think they are. But yeah. I don't know. They also can be the people we think they are. It's just psychopath thing. They blend in very well. They do, but... You know, unbeknownst to his neighbors, this wasn't actually Raymond's first brush with the law. In 1957, so this is about 20 years before 1976, uh, he was jailed for about six months under the name Lawrence Van... No, Van Uwehoven for an unprovoked attack on a 17-year-old girl. He struck her in the face, back, and shoulder. He also tried to attack a 16-year-old girl, and he stated he was only trying to scare both of them. 
And just a side note, when this goes to trial, this occurrence was not allowed to be discussed because he was already convicted for it. Mm, then they would just mess. Yeah, technicalities in the court stuff. Then besides this, in 1960, he pled guilty for not providing financial support for his wife and one-year-old daughter at the time. So that was another thing that he had to deal with. And in more recent times, neighbors reported seeing a menacing side of Raymond when he drank, which he had only quit just a few years prior to his arrest. So he was a mean drunk. Yeah. But he he only had the one wife, and he left and didn't pay child support. But then there's four more kids. I, I believe... He had a second wife at some point. Okay. Just because Crazy. of the, you know, four more kids and everything. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So, let's kind of get into the trial and everything going on with that. Speaking about trials, just side tangent, I was waiting all day to hear the verdict about Johnny Depp and Amber Heard's trial. Yeah, that's what's going on right now is that whole debacle shindig yeah circus show i don't know is very, like, very entertaining as much as i want it to be you know a clear-cut case like the jury instruction was like 35 pages long and they have to answer uh, like a lot of different versions of like three questions to like prove guilty or innocence they could both be guilty they can both be innocent and all this stuff and they have to be unanimous on it so like Ultimately, it's going to be a long time to discuss, but, like, everyone's mm. just, like, biting their nails to hear the verdict. Just waiting on it. And, I mean, it seems like everybody but Amber Heard and her team are kind of just tired of their team at that point. Like, yeah. the judge has been showing up all over the internet, just showing exhaustion and just, just irritation. It's so funny. I It is. like th There was a lot of funny moments that came from that trial. But to be fair, Amber Heard's team really did try. Like, Oh, they, they did everything they possibly could. She just didn't help them any, which was not, no. not a good thing. Um, no. But there are so many memes that came from that trial. It was really, really oh, so funny. Many. I mean, the legend of Amber Turd will live on for centuries, maybe. I'm going to make a cup that has Megapoint on it for wine. <laughs> <laughs> That'll work. Yeah. Anyway. Anyways, this trial. This trial. Sorry for the side tangent. But um, before the case was even tried, Raymond had to have a competency uh, hearing to, like, see if he could stay in trial or not. You know, since his age and health and everything. Seeing if he was viable for anything... Because, like, insanity, incompetence, senileness, and whatnot. Yeah, and, like, you know, his team probably tried to go for, like, the senile route at this point. Just for, you know, to withhold the trial and everything because of mm. his age. Like, that would be a decent defense to go on. But, however, he had to actually undergo this examination twice. Because after the first examination, he... Apparently, he suffered a stroke, which then, you know, led to the second examination. However, when the prosecution presented an MRI, it seemed to indicate that 
he never actually suffered a stroke, so he just kind of faked it. Yeah, so he could give it another shot. Yeah, so regardless, the second examination confirmed that he was competent to stand trial. And, uh... boy. Yeah, he, he answered in the second competency hearing that he was, in fact, competent. So he said, yes, I am competent. Accordingly, after the competency hearing, the trial date was set approximately 27 months after he got arrested with the charges. So two years after his 2019 arrest date. Mm-hmm. My goodness. During the trial, the strategy of the defense was to highlight that the presence of Benahauven's semen and Matthew Shorts did not necessarily prove that he shot the couple, just that he had sex with her. Furthermore, the defense stated that the bullet fragments at the crime scene did not match the 38 rifle. In addition, one of the witnesses from the park that day described the suspect with medium-length hair, a mustache, and being no older than 28. However, Vannon Hoven would have been 36 in 1976, and as a military man, he would have kept his hair short and never wore a mustache. So, some looking Mm. discrepancies. Mm -hmm. The witness also said that he observed the man walking towards a Plymouth car with Michigan plates. However, Vannehoven's car was a Ford at the time, and he had long been a Wisconsin resident, so no Michigan plates. In regards to the murder weapon, the prosecution argued that Vanhoven picked up the shell casings and then had over 40 years to get rid of the rifle. That's fair. I mean, yeah, but, I mean, to think he would still have it after that amount of time, even even if it was a trophy or just to make it seem like it's not suspicious, I don't think anybody really holds on to, I don't know, Bullet. some of these guns or like they they do trade-ins all the time it's sort of like cars so like if it's a certain kind and then another kind comes out they can trade in for a cheaper price on the new one and stuff like that kind of like how uncle guy would do that with snowmobiles for a while while we were growing up where he'd essentially have the newest snowmobile and the next year he would trade in to get yeah. a new one yeah well like gun shows were like a huge thing too like where there would be big events to trade and buy and sell weapons and everything and you know those were held like every holiday weekend and normal weekend and you could pretty much find one any weekend in wisconsin because basically yeah at least northern wisconsin yeah but um kind of you know going back to the appearance and everything so uh, in regards to the witness testimony, the defense brought up a photograph of Vanahoven in 1976 that displayed that, showed him with a heavy shadow of a beard, so like his five o'clock shadow was really, really dark, and noted that the witness would only have seen him for a brief glance from the side and then from the rear mirror, so heavy five o'clock shadow could l- look like a beard. Mm-hmm. Another issue in the case was the admissibility of the DNA of Vanahoven as it was obtained through deceit. So, kind of what we were getting into about the envelope and everything. So, the defense did acknowledge that the court has upheld the admissibility of the DNA obtained by deceit. They argue that there had to have been a line, and that if this was not the line, then they weren't sure where their line would be drawn. So, just establishing, like, the line and retaining DNA, basically, was was the argument that they had to fight. Are they, like, drawing the line at using trickery to get it 
and it's like nothing's freely given and like they had different avenues to go with to get this so yeah i mean so like some people use like coffee cups like interrogation and interrogations that you know people discard and like all that stuff too so they're like where does this line get drawn yeah yeah, and then they also argue that the case was distinguishable because the DNA was ultimately sent to a different part of law enforcement office for a completely different purpose than what was described. So just saying, like, hey, we didn't even touch it. It went to this place to, you know, get dissected for DNA and all that stuff. But ultimately, Judge James Morrison ruled that the DNA would be admissible and explained that Van Hoven did not have to answer the door. They didn't have to speak with the deputy. They didn't have to fill out the survey or mail in the survey. So instead, he chose to cooperate with law enforcement, which the judge noted that most people do. So, you know, he chose to do this document, chose to do the survey. That was up to him. Mm-hmm. So, following a week-long trial, the jury deliberated for about two hours and returned a guilty verdict for two counts of first-degree murder. Judge Morrison sentenced Vanhoven to two consecutive life sentences, noting then that the sentence was appropriate due to the depraved and unspeakable nature of the crimes. Joanne McCluskey Schultz, David Schultz, the victim's younger sister, noted that the conviction did bring closure to her and her mother, but understandably... She said that it could never bring justice. Instead, she stated that he took 45 years away from them, the couple, when they were just on the threshold of starting their lives, and 43 of those years he spent going about his business with freedom to live his life. So is there any amount of equal justice there? No, but we're happy with the conviction. That is what's left for them, and we're happy to get it. The defense attorneys then tried to introduce evidence regarding two other potential suspects, but Judge Morrison denied these motions, setting up potential future appeals. So, uh, just kind of recapping, David's younger sister said there will be no justice because he got forty-five year, or 43 years yeah. to live his life as he wanted and robbed, you know, her brother. Yeah, robbed them of the rest of their life and while he was living the rest of his and the defense then were trying to put forth some other suspect evidence as like a way to an attempt and appeal in the future uh that and to like discredit um the dna evidence mm-hmm. that they had okay well jade is dreaming <laughs> <laughs> i don't know if you hear that in the background she's having a dream oh, I hear I hear it. <laughs> Jado, wake up, Pupperino. Sorry about that. <laughs> so during the sentencing, Van Hoven did not display remorse and that his statement at his sentencing seemed very defiant and he criticized the defense attorney. Van Hoven's daughter noted that the only thing that the trial proved was that her father had an affair, which is kind of a very bitch thing in my opinion that the daughter said like i mean these two people died and yeah but like was that fiance the affair or was he sleeping with somebody else or what was going on with that her dad didn't get killed her dad was the killer oh i i'm saying that she said that the fiance that got murdered was the affair with her dad but her dad was the killer 
I don't know if that was an actual affair. No, it's not. That's why I'm saying that's a bitch thing to say. Oh. Maybe she just can't accept that. Her father killed somebody. And raped them. Yeah. Yeah. So that that's why I'm saying, like, that was kind of very insensitive to say. Yeah, it just, nah, no. Nah, no. Yeah. It's not good. Bad taste. Keep so, it to yourself. Yeah. Anywho, uh, so something updated was that even though we can't find, like, a, an exact news article reporting this appeal, last week an appeal was filed on May 24th that um, Vanna Hoven's attorney did file with the state and to the Court of Appeals on District 3 for his conviction, which he was convicted on August 27th of 2021. So he is appealing this case. And I'll give you updates as, you know, we continue, but I don't expect to hear any updates on the appeal for the foreseeable future for some time. Hmm. Crazy, though. Yeah. And I mean, the dude's old, like really old. Mm. So that's our case. Uh, so again, like the appeal was just filed last week. So we will keep you guys up to date and possibly have a mini sewed on Patreon or Patreon content regarding updates to this case too, which should be fun. Yeah. Yeah, Patreon stuff. Yeah, and if you guys, again, have any topics or... You guys want us to do a deep dive, specifically our Patreon members. Again, please reach out, send us a message, and we will cover it. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, after a year, I wouldn't mind some refresher type info on some of these episodes we did. I can't even remember half of the stuff I pronounced way back then. And like all those weird creatures and critters that we talked about. Especially on your uh, 50 states cryptid uh, shallow dives on yeah. each, each one. That was kind of fun. It, it was. It was just like, you know, that's pretty crazy. I was thinking maybe we could do something similar, but with like the European countries. Yeah, yeah. Definitely do like cryptids, cryptid countries or something. Or country yeah. cryptid. Something like that. I don't know. That could be a fun episode. Yeah. If you guys like that story, again, hit subscribe, give us a review, and if you have any topic suggestions, please send that to our email at violinvice at gmail.com. Again, that's V-I-L-E-N-D-V-I-C-E at gmail.com. We love hearing from you guys, and topic suggestions are always, always welcome. Also, a big thank you to our head researcher. Corinne Drybelvis, thank you again so much for your hard work, and... Mm -hmm. We appreciate it. Oh, yeah. It it has literally made quite the difference for us. It really has. Uh, but, yeah, again, check out Patreon, too. That's patreon.com backslash vice for extra content. Yeah, no, we love getting emails from our listeners and uh, sponsors especially. And uh, I mean, we do talk about some creepy stuff, but I assure you we are rather approachable. Yes. Oh, I do have one more announcement, too. <gasps> Ooh, so starting, hopefully by the time this episode is out, we ha- would have received our uh, tester merch. So 
keep an eye out for that. And once I know how to set that up on the web, we will have links to buy merch and everything. So stay tuned for that and keep an eye on your socials. Mm-hmm. That'll be fun. Yeah. Love the new logo, by the way. Thank you, Colton. Yeah, Colton, great job on that. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. All right. Bye-bye. See you. Thank you for listening to Violent Vice Podcast. Cover art is by Colton Griffith. Music by Ann Valerie Beck. And research done by Corinne Drybelvis. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Violent Vice Podcast or on Twitter at Violent Vice. That's V-I-L-E-A-N-D-B-I-C-E. No ampersands here. If you want to help support the show, please do so on Patreon at patreon.com backslash violinvice or give us a once-off donation on PayPal with our email, violinvice at gmail.com. Again, that's V-I-L-E-A-N-D-V-I-C-E to keep the spooky stories coming. Thank you.